Welcome to uh, another very exciting episode of the greatest, greatest podcast in, in history. history. Wow. Both of our voices at once. Uh, I don't know if you can tell us apart yet. Uh, we're, <laughs> our two white dude voices generally sound exactly the same. Oh, no. But yeah. I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. And as we said, could you in unison again? This is the, the greatest, greatest podcast in history. history. Oh, episode three. Uh, the big three. Yeah. Uh, not the big three oh, just the big three. No. Uh, but we've got some pretty exciting, uh, interesting topics to talk about today. And historical. Yes. Um, Timely. The only podcast where everything is not 100% accurate, but 100% true. Exactly. We have never said anything wrong on this podcast. You can go back and check. Um, we've never been wrong about a single thing. Especially me. I've never been wrong about no. multiple things in one episode. Oh, God. That definitely didn't happen. No. Uh, and I can prove it. And I never mispronounce uh, Dreyfus. Never. No. At all. Um, so today, uh, we have some very topical, um, timely mm-hmm. things. Uh, some topical more... if we were doing this 100 years ago. Well, true. But it's uh, we're going to be kind of talking about the Battle of the Psalm a little bit. Uh, which, for those who don't know, uh, the battle was a big, one of the biggest uh, World War One battles and one of the bloodiest battles in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, it took place a hundred years ago, starting uh, yesterday, July first. Uh, so on July first, two thousand sixteen, and it lasted for about July first, nineteen sixteen. Nineteen sixteen is when it started. Yeah. Once again, we're never wrong. We're off to a great start. Uh, rock and rolling. Um, and it lasted well into November. November eighteenth. Uh, November eighteenth. Remember, remember the eighteenth of November, two thousand sixteen. Oh, ah, okay. <laughs> nineteen sixteen. Uh, we're doing great. Um, but there's uh, an interesting part about the the Battle of the Perhaps like the only, I guess, kind of funny or interesting uh, bit about it, because uh, it was pretty much a hellhole if yeah. you were fighting the Psalm. Five month battle. It was you were fighting in like frigid mud. Yeah, out of it. Um, terrible, you get trench foot, you get gangrene, you get, uh, every other kind of disease known to man. You get dead. Uh, you become deaf from the artillery fire, because um, it opened up after one of the, I think, the largest barrage, artillery barrages in human history. Like day um, long. Yeah. Multiple days. Also, a, uh, a fun tidbit fact, uh, the very first projectile or man-made object to reach, uh, into the atmosphere and the stratosphere uh, was an artillery shell from oh, World War One. I. I didn't know that. From the Paris gun. Yeah, it was a big train gun huh. that the Germans had um, that could fire from miles and miles away, and it was the first one to to reach uh, Seems pointless. Space. Like, you can't see miles away. Yeah, true, but... You're just, like, shooting at stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, you strap on a GoPro to it, and... Uh, yeah, that's true. I guess most of World War One is pretty pointless, though. Yeah. Um... A lot of <laughs> a lot of useless things that happened in World War One, yeah, including most of the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, uh, which will be interesting as we can talk a little bit um, later on about how you know how do you remember something like this? How exactly. do you do? You, how do you honor the men who fought it, or you know how do you honor their memory? Um, how can you go about that in a kind of a nice way or a, a proper way? And how that's changed over the years, especially for the Battle of the Somme too. Yeah, and World War One did a lot to change. Mankind's perspective on war. People kind. Yeah. We're inclusive here. 
Yes. And the greatest podcast in history. Ooh, the greatest. Mitch is not woke. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Battle of Somme was the first battle to also use tanks, which is a fun fact. Yeah. Um, just like the Miramiak and the uh, Monitor were the first ironclad I, ships ooh. to fight in the Civil War. Yep, ironclads. Those lasted super long and made a huge impact on history. Hey, submarines are clad in iron. Yeah. Well, I, I used to pronounce it iron for a very long time. Ooh. That's um, not correct. I think in the Ken Burns documentary, the um, they say that as soon as those two ships opened fire during the American Civil War, every other navy in the entire world was obsolete. Um, just because shells would fly off those and stuff like that. But um, anyway, it's another story for another podcast. Exactly. It's like when I bought the iPhone 7S, everything else became obsolete. <laughs> or you can get Android. Ugh, if you're an idiot, maybe. <laughs> uh, We're going to stand for Apple, a horrible company that hires slaves in China. Oh, who doesn't these days? Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, um, so back to the topic at hand. Uh, during the Battle of Somme, on the very first day... Uh, it's S-O-M-M-E, yes. if you're writing along at home. It's, or it's, it's cribbing off of us for an essay. Yes. Uh, please don't do that. Oh, or do. Um, just credit us. Yeah. Put the whole thing in quotes, and then <laughs> but note it as Mitch and Dylan. Citations are your friend. Um, so during the very first day, there was something that's kind of gone down in history known as the football charge. That's British football, not American. Yeah, we're going to be referring to, whenever we refer to football in this, we're talking about soccer or British the footy. football. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and the story goes that uh, his guy, this guy's name was uh, Wilfred Neville, a.k.a. Billy. Billy Neville. Billy as Neville. As they say down... In Wopshishishaya, uh, where he's from. Yes. Uh, he was in the British Army and was a captain. He was 22 years old. Yeah. By the time this happened. So 22. Keep, keep you know that what I was doing when I was 22? I was watching all of Supernatural on the WB. <laughs> I got, I'm in season five right now. Oh, uh, so I wasn't leading people into death. I was watching something on my parents' couch. <laughs> uh, so this is not me. Uh, yeah. Oh, how the times have changed. How the times have changed. Um... He's also captain of the cricket. Yeah, he uh, seems like a made-up title. <laughs> he, yeah, he went to uh, Dover College, and then he went to uh, J- Jesus College at ah, Cambridge. Jesus College, yes, as the Brits say, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, uh, Jesus, gonna eat some fish and chips. <laughs> what then? He's a bloody legend, mate. Anyway, uh, it sorry. me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that all uh, all zero of our British listeners are very exactly. offended by that accent. That's uh, fine with me. Uh, so he was in the East Surrey Regiment at the time, and he was kind of aware of how terrifying it was to go over the top. Exactly. Which is basically when you're waiting in the trenches, your uh, officers blow a whistle, and you're expected to jump up out of the trenches, and literally walk, especially in the Battle of the Somme, because they had, um, the idea was they had bombarded the Germans with so much artillery for days and days and days that they expected not a single German to be alive. So they told all the men to walk at a pace of two miles per hour across no man's land. Um, but the thing was, these Germans weren't dead, and they yeah. were walking straight into machine gun fire. Yeah, so he knew how terrifying that could be. And his plan was uh, he smuggled a bunch of footballs, two footballs. uh, Soccer balls. Yeah, soccer balls, 
into the trenches, and then as soon as they got, they went over the top, and the fire started to go out. Uh, people started shooting at them. Uh, they started dribbling across no man's land, and kind of made a game of it in a mm-hmm. sense. Um, it's it's kind of shocking that the only way you could uh, come to grips with crossing no man's land under machine gun fire was to kick a soccer ball ahead of you. But and at the same time, it makes sense. It was like an attempt to bring. This is such like an unreal situation for a lot of these people. Like warfare, like mechanized warfare like this hadn't really existed at this scale before. And so it was just like so unreal for all these people. And like these are mostly young men, like 18. Like as we said, like Neville was a captain in the army and he was only 22 years old. Yeah. Most people were younger or his same age. And they're dealing like with coming out of like Britain where they're on a farm or working in a factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they have to like in this industrial scale like warfare, which is completely unrecognizable to anybody at the time. They just somehow deal with this. Yeah. And soccer was a way they could do that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that was the only way that they could kind of bring, have some kind of comfort or familiar sense um, as they go charge across. And it's also kind of interesting because um, if you think about kind of historically what's typically led charges is um, back in like medieval times it was banners they'd have a, a, a king's banner or a lord's banner um, or in the civil war you'd be walking cross and you'd be have your regimental flag and the united states flag or the confederate flag um, so but instead of these big kind of nationalistic or uh, lordly symbols that they were le- that they were charging under it was a soccer ball, uh, which was just a, you know, the, the poorest of the poor could play soccer. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter who you were or where you're from. You just, it was just a thing. Um, exactly. It was like a connection to home. Yeah. Which, for, which comforted a lot of these people, even though they were still mostly marching into their death. Yeah. Which is something to not forget. That this guy, like, did these things so people would die. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean the I mean the psalm the battle of psalm get granted it to take place over like five months mm-hmm. but it I mean there was over a million casualties on both yeah. sides uh, making it one of the bloodiest battles in human history ever um, which is just insane uh, unheard of really the I mean the British lost had I think twenty thousand dead mm-hmm. on the first day yep. Day one. Yeah. And they still went at it for another five months. Yeah. Haig, the guy in charge, um, just that was his, really his only plan was just to throw people mm-hmm. at the Germans. Just yeah. to keep and keep on going. Yeah. Um, and it just, that was a plan through throughout a lot of battles in World War One, And it seems ridiculous to us, but, you know, the, the, the old saying goes is that the officers or generals, uh, fight the last war's battles. Mm-hmm. So they were looking back at the either the Crimean War, the Franco-Prussian War, or even the American Civil War, um, and looking at how those battles were fought and still adhering to those old forms of military tactics. Uh, but, even though it was a completely different kind of warfare now, yeah, with the advances in technology mm-hmm. and the ability of people to manufacture things. Yeah, um, there's also I read an interesting story about there's a a I guess, sorry, quick correction, uh, so we never get anything wrong. Yeah. 20,000 died on the first day of the Somme in the British Army, but there was 57,000 casualties yeah. on the British side, British side alone. Yeah. And something that confused me for a long time is that there's a difference between casualties and, and killed. Yes. Um, casualties are K 
killed, wounded, or captured. Mm-hmm. So basically people who can't fight anymore. And so you oftentimes see casualties as a huge number and then killed as a as a much smaller number. But I mean, even in the case of these World War I battles, we see casualties are astoundingly high, but also killed. That number is is yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, it's like as as high as any normal battle that they expected to yeah, be for casualties in normal. general. Yeah, um, which is just insane. You don't see those kinds of numbers anywhere mm-hmm. ever. Uh, maybe in World War Two, but not in single battles. Though. Yeah, um, but there's a, an interesting story of a, a a Canadian regiment from the from Newfoundland, and I think there was. 750 or 70-some soldiers had reported uh, ready for duty in the trenches of the Somme on the morning of July 1st, 1916. The next day, on July 2nd, 1916, there was only 68 men who were there and able to carry out their duties. Um, so that's I mean, that's 700 men, like 900, exactly. 90%. Yeah. I'm not good at math, but... That's the vast majority was either killed or wounded or was going to die in the hospital or mm. captured or anything. And it's just brutal. Yeah. And I mean, most of these people came from like similar villages or they lived together. Mm-hmm. And so, like, whole towns essentially were decimated by these battles, even more than decimated, like yeah. destroyed. They called it the, uh, the PALS system. Yeah. Um, where you, yeah, you, you enlisted, it was their volunteer regiments made up of. Uh, men from similar villages who were all friends and gone to school exactly. together, played on the same club football teams. They figured they'd be more willing to, you know, walk across no man's land if they all knew each other rather yeah. than they were strangers. But that just ended up, you know, destroying whole villages. Yeah, and it, I mean, it makes sense. You would think that you'd be, you would be fighting harder if you're with your friends and whatnot. But it makes it more devastating for the survivors of those battalions as well as the. The people back home. Exactly. And PTSD was not a thing back then. Yeah, it was still called shell shock. Or yeah, or was, like not being a man. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think there were, because I, I heard at, at a conference they were talking about um, PTSD treatments in World War One, and this was really the first war where soldiers were uh, beginning to receive proper treatment. Uh, there still, you know, wasn't as good of an understanding of it at all compared to what we have today. And we, today, we still don't fully understand it, and it still don't provide a, as great uh, care as we probably should. But there was this was the beginning. World War One changed so many of our perceptions about war in general that there was a start at the beginning of a shift from this old notions of masculinity and that if you were really traumatized by battles. Um, you weren't a man anymore. There's the start of a shift exactly. in understanding. And this is that shift's pretty evident in the literature coming out of World War One. Yeah, like World War One poetry, like the writings. There's so many books um, about just like the horrors of World War One uh, and what happened. I'm trying to like there. I took a whole class on it, and I'm forgetting most of <laughs> the authors now, of course. Um, but like, there's it's everywhere. You can just uh, like there's so many different poems and. Um, and uh, stories just about like being in the trenches of World War One, and it's like the start of this almost like a lot of it gets really like not existential but like surreal just because they were experiencing so many things they hadn't experienced before. There's like a famous uh, French book about it where there's just a, the final scene is him just like going into literal hell when he's fighting in a battle, and it's like he describes his like journey like into like uh, hell while he's like in battle, and it's like it's incredibly powerful, and it's, you can just see 
like what they had to deal with yeah. uh, for the first times in their lives. Yeah, and I think one of the probably the most one of the most familiar uh, pieces of World War One literature that people people know is All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes, correct. Um, which is interesting because it's it's written from the German perspective, uh, but to be honest, it could be written from any mm. any army's perspective. Um, I think that's, and I know I had to read it in high school, and I regret it because I really didn't read it yeah, at all. Of course. Um, like, no one reads the books in high school, except yeah. you uh, kids listening. listening yeah, out there. read all Please. your books in high yes. school. Read I did books. actually read every book except for um, Joseph Conrad, uh, the one, the movie. Heart of Darkness? Heart of Darkness. Couldn't get through it. Uh, pretty bad. Didn't like it. That's one of the ones I did read. Oh, it's garbage. I fell asleep reading it. It's not <laughs> <Fell asleep. good. laughs> All right. Uh, the uh, terror, the horror. Ugh. Get over yourself. Okay. <laughs> For a guy who's all about, you know, challenging. Uh, Joseph Conrad's Secret Agent was good. Uh, everything else was bad. Yeah. Um, so back to back to Billy Neville. Uh, oh, Billy. Oh, Billy. He unfortunately did not survive <laughs> the charge, much like the vast majority of the soldiers. Uh, he was actually killed while trying to get through the barbed wire fence. And so it's a really kind of terrifying image, but a very, you know, very common one of soldiers mm-hmm. being strung up yeah. on the barbed wire and then pelted with machine gun fire. Um, the What did survive, though, were the two soccer balls. Uh, and they were brought back and now are in um, the uh, Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment Museum at Dover Castle, uh, I believe. Yeah, that's the other. There's the other one. There's only one left. One of them burned. Uh, the building it was stored in burnt down. Yeah. Um, so only one of these two uh, footballs uh, survives. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting how that's you know a, a symbol of kind of heroism in the face of insurmountable odds. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a big story in Britain. Like, uh, there's a famous poem that they wrote about. Um, like one of the newspapers uh, wrote about this story, and it like kind of they used it. They at this point in the war, the British really needed some like positive press, and so they bumped the story a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's it's not not in any way to diminish any of uh, the soldiers, but it's kind of a simple yeah. story. It's a simple way of looking at um, the simple things in life in in this complicated, convoluted. Uh, really uh, well interwoven war. Um, that's you have to you have to really work to unpack um, everything about it. So, uh, do do you want to read the uh, poem? Oh, yeah, sure. It's called uh, Touchstone. Uh, it was, this was printed in the Daily Mail um, just a couple of days as a tribute um, to this quote unquote football charge. Uh, On through the hail of slaughter, where gallant comrades fall, where blood is poured like water, they drive the trickling ball. The fear of death before them is but an empty name. True to the land that bore them, the Surreys played the game. So, I mean, and poetry, as we said, was still, like, a huge genre at this time. This was still, like, people read poetry, like, they interacted with it, like, people wrote poetry, both for fun and to print. And so this was, like, that the Daily Mail would post, like, uh, would print this was like a huge uh, work for them. Mm-hmm. And it, it works as a piece of propaganda. It's all about, you know, like the where gallant comrades fall. They're going through this slaughter uh, and they, they played the game. It's like a, it's the comparison of war to a game is 
like it's incredibly like representative of how like the leadership at the time were like wanted people to think of war. You yeah, know, it was like the, a man's game. Like we're like we're going out there as a team, and we're gonna like win this together with teamwork. When it was, but in comparison to like the hail of slaughter, like no game is like that. Yeah, um, and it's 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 interesting. I have have things like this, and then uh, I can't believe it. I think it was the Crimean War um, that the the charge of the Light Brigade. Yes, born to the breach. Yeah, and that's your friends. That's a very um, on the surface, it seems like it's a very heroic um, uh, piece, but in, if I think if you really unpack it, you see that's more of a, uh, a criticism of war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are they why are they following their leader just um, without any kind of questioning of why they're there or anything like that? So you can kind of see this kind of change in the late nineteenth century, but it's it's a very underground movement of seeing war. Um, as not a, not a good thing. Exactly. And then it wouldn't really be until after World War One, where this full our kind of our modern understanding of mm-hmm. war um, kind of really became fleshed out. So this this piece, uh, this story of the the Surrey Regiment, uh, is actually a pretty interesting piece in that it it contrasts with the story of another football charge. Typically, if you ask someone about the football charge, not many people know about it. But if they do know about it, they'll talk about Billy Neville exactly. and the and the Surrey Brigade. Uh, they won't talk about the second one that happened. That was by the London Irish Rifles Brigade. Um, and there's there's potentially a, a couple reasons for this. the The London Irish Rifles led their own football charge. Uh, a few months ago, uh, later, I mean, at the, no, <laughs> just a couple of months know. ago. <laughs> um, what's this podcast thing? <laughs> at the the Battle of Loose, uh, which took place. L O O S for those <laughs> yeah. writing their essays. Yeah. Lou, I think maybe is how it's pronounced. Probably uh, not like the British bathroom, but like the French word for the place that it was. Yeah. Um, and that took place from September 25th through October 8th, 1915. So actually, no, a, a year before. Yeah, so this was the first one. This was the very first football charge. Um, and it's, it's actually potentially even more interesting, uh, just from a, a objective historical view, because uh, it was... It was, it was uh, Rifleman Frank Edwards, who was a, a captain of the, of the regiment's football team, was the one who came up with the idea to why don't we bring footballs into into the trenches and lead a football charge. He and a bunch of friends had smuggled them into the trenches, and initially, the I guess their officers were okay with it. But as they you know fixed their bayonets and they got ready to go over the top, one of the officers decided that he didn't like the idea anymore, and he took the soccer balls that they had and. Uh, he punctured them and popped them. And but uh, good old rifleman Frank Edwards had one left inside of his jacket pocket that he, right before they were about to go over the top, he hid behind his friends, pulled out the uh, the soccer ball that was deflated at this time and blew it up with his own breath. And then uh, it was ready to go. And he they went over the top. He threw that ball out there. And he was he was shot through the thigh. He survived the battle, um, and so did the soccer ball. Uh, but this was really the first 
uh, football charge, but you don't you don't hear you about don't it. hear about it, and it's interesting. Yeah, like, and, and you can part of this most likely is because they're Irish at yeah. the time. And while we see in the second football charge, you have a guy, he's from Cambridge. You know, he grew up with a quote unquote like a good family. Um, he was upper class. Um, and he was like a he was seen as a hero. They wrote poems about him in the newspapers. But this first one, you don't have that. You have like the dirty, dirty Irish at the time. They're like London, they're all commoners. The charge wasn't led by an officer. Billy Neville was an officer. The, uh, this guy who led the first football charge was not. He was just a regular enlisted man. The officers told him not to, and no one talked about it. Um, and most likely it's because of that class difference. They, the class, it's almost it's essentially a caste system in England at this point, and it was just so uh, regimented and controlled that this, like, they didn't, no one wanted to hear about uh, these, like, just regular old soldiers, you know, disobeying orders from their uh, supposed leaders, even though, like, the charge was somewhat successful in this first one. But no one really talks about it yeah. outside of those people in the regiment, of course. Yeah, and I mean, now there's, the, that football has also been taken back and, and put into a, a museum, but uh, that's still that notion of uh, the only heroes were, were people who are officers or from middle to upper classes um, still is, is, is seen in a lot of history. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a problem, and it's, and it's really difficult to get over that, um, especially because at the time, if you if you're looking for historical evidence for for something, you'd only find newspaper articles printed about the Surrey Regiment and Billy Neville and his charge. Um, you wouldn't find as nearly as many articles, or if any, about this Irish regiment. Um, so just from a historical historian's point of view, it's harder to do research on this this smaller subject uh, because from from the get go, it's it wasn't given the publicity and the attention that it probably deserved. Exactly. So I mean, even if you want, even if you wanted to do like this less not great man history, it's harder to do. I mean, it's still you can still do it, but it's so much more work, which means that a lot of people won't do it, which is one of the big. Problems like you find the way we tell history is that people possibly, potentially, maybe want to tell these stories, but they just can't because there's not the evidence or the historical record to tell them. Exactly. Um, Especially the farther back you go. Yeah. Like if you want to do stuff in the 1950s, people are still alive. So you can still do that. But if you like World War One, it's been 100 years. You can't talk to people anymore. You yeah. Have to, you can only rely on written records and those don't always exist. Yeah. And if um, just to, like give a like a British example, if you're trying to give do um, some historical research on, say like the servants or the maids of a of a wealthy house, and how the the classes inter, inter uh, played with each other, you would most likely have to look at the documents and letters and diaries of the the lords and ladies who owned that house, the aristocrats, um, and kind of look uh, go against the grain. To look at how, if, if they said, you know, this maid didn't do her job, um, well, I had to fire her or something like that, you have to kind of look at that and say, okay, you know, how, how did that, how does that show me or tell me something about how these lower classes lived? Um, and it's kind of a, a historical uh, point, of, point of analysis you have to take for a lot of different uh, topics. Or you could just watch Downton Abbey. Exactly. Uh, but that's me. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's good. It's good. Have you? Oh man, I've seen like one episode, and I was like, I'm fine. I'll go back to you know watching Supernatural. I don't think I've. I still haven't watched this final season, but oh yes, because Supernatural is just high. Supernatural is an historical uh, entertainment nonfiction show about god. hunting demons. Yeah. Dean Winchester and his brother. Oh god, it's a great show. Yeah. Check it out, CW. No, uh, it's a good time. Don't do it. All right, uh, but uh, it's also interesting to to talk about kind of this, this I don't know discrimination against the Irish Brigade in the media in light of what would happen a few months after the football charge with Easter Rising. Mm-hmm. So obviously tensions between England and the rest of the United Kingdom and Ireland have been bubbling under the surface for decades, uh, Forever, for centuries, <laughs> yeah, for millennia, really. Um, I mean, you can go back to Elizabeth and, and Cromwell even um, to look at oppression, English oppression of the Irish and beyond that. But uh, it's, it's just – it's another point of how did the English media and the upper classes who were interpreting these stories view people who would be called like the Irish Rifle Brigade. Or- exactly. Because in the – like – Almost just previous to World War One, there had been several serious attempts to try to separate Ireland from uh, England and the UK, but they were pretty much quashed, uh, along with a lot of labor um, unrest and women's uh, rights uh, actions by World War One. There was just called to like unite as a people to you know conquer the heathen German or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so all these like uprisings and movements were pretty much stopped dead in their tracks. Yeah. At the advent of World War One. But you can see, still see the ramifications of these um, uprisings throughout. And this, the non-disclosure, um, non-talking uh, like, about um, this first charge, uh, football charge, is, one of, is an evidence of those things. They just didn't want to, the British media didn't want to cover it anymore because partly it was Irish and it showed like Irish independence and Irish strength, yeah. which isn't something they wanted to point out. Yeah. Um, this isn't, and this is really isn't, it's a tough connection to make, but it's just something that just popped in my head. Um, Ooh, fresh, fresh, <laughs> hot historical analysis from Mitch, guys. Ooh, boy. Sit up in your seats and pay attention. <laughs> Everyone get ready. I'm going to throw some historical knowledge at you. Not really. This is just, uh, just kind of a, a strange connection I just had. Um, if you look at the American Civil War, for decades, slavery had been causing tensions in the United States government and between the regions and between the people in the United States, um, and it's bubbling up under the surface. And then, in its in its core, slavery caused the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, and it was during the Civil War that um, the Emancipation Proclamation was passed, and slavery from from the Civil War, slavery would be abolished. And exactly, none, and of, that, none of that states' rights nonsense here. In the yeah, case. it's bull- states' rights to own slaves yeah. is Ugh. what that exactly. was. Um, yes, yeah, we're not. That's another topic uh, we could talk about. But Ugh. historiography. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also it's interesting to look at in World War One, where you had for for centuries this kind of Irish freedom movement. Uh, and tensions between the two nations bubbling up under the surface, and then in World War One, the Easter Rising occurs, and from World War One, which we should explain a little bit about what the Easter Rising is. Yeah, um, would you like to? Uh, uh, I mean, I it. Basically, this movement, this small band of it really was, it was just seven or eight uh, 
leaders really mm-hmm. um, took charge, uh, um, stormed the post office in Dublin. On and this the, was in April, like yeah. Easter week, which yeah. is why it's called the Easter Uprising. Yeah, of, of 1916. Mm-hmm. So right before Battle of the Sun. Yeah. And they put up a poster declaring an Irish Republic. And they kind of held out there. And um, the, 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 the crown soldiers sent in troops because they, you know, they don't want to... They're not going to settle for this while this is going on. And they fired on the post office and they, they captured the soldiers. Keep in mind, the British Army brought in thousands of people. Yeah. reinforcements, thousands, while <laughs> World War One was happening. Yeah. Like, the Battle of the Somme was about to begin, and they brought in thousands of people <laughs> to shut down this, like, seven-person thing. Yeah, but, you know, in, in the crossfire and from the explosions of the, the Army's guns, um, about 500 people were killed. Uh, 54% of them were civilians, uh, 30% were British military and police, and 16% were Irish rebels. So although it was being led by these these kind of like seven or eight uh, men who, were, who took the government building and proclaimed the republic, there were um, kind of, it was kind of like a little guerrilla exactly. uh, tactics going on throughout Dublin um, trying to lead this independence movement. And one of the interesting things is that they got a lot of these guns that they had for the uprising from the British, specifically from like British PMs who like in the build up to World War One, where like some of them they were in the Irish Parliament and they like brought guns over. Yeah, it's like it's a crazy story. Um, but none of this really would have, in all honesty, like none of this was a would have been would have led to an Irish Republic necessarily. Uh, the the majority of Irishmen at the time still. Didn't they didn't want to go as drastically as proclaiming republic? It was still a minority movement. Uh, they didn't have necessarily firm loyalties to the crown, but they weren't they weren't looking to separate themselves completely. They're more neutral. It wasn't until uh, the British officers took these these seven or eight Irish patriots uh, and to to the jail. Um, I think it's called Kilman Jail or something like that um, in Dublin. <laughs> Clock. We're really great uh, historians, <laughs> aren't we? Wow. Uh, I've, I even went and toured it when I was in. I've also been to the jail when I was in Dublin, um, but I do not remember um, how it's pronounced. Um, also, it'd be Kuman Mamban. No, that was the female thing. Um, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the jail. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was an Irish name. Yeah, but it wasn't until. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't until uh, the the soldiers executed these seven or eight men that that really kind of galvanized um, the Irish into making the independence movement a majority movement. Uh, so it's interesting because they the the last thing the British wanted was to kind of make martyrs out of these men. That's exactly. that's why they had them and, executed. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. They didn't want to face an uprising at home while they were still fighting World War One. Exactly. But they were idiots and, like, publicly executed people. Yeah. Um, which is a great way to make martyrs. Yeah. Um, so, which is, yeah, so that's that's interesting how that led a, a small Easter Rising movement into this this grand independence movement that led to a an independent Ireland. Um Separate from Northern Ireland, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but that was mostly because of re- religious and um, kind of 
loyal to the crown ideology differences. Um, but who knows? Today, the, in a few years, we might see a reunited Ireland. Yeah, especially with the Brexit. <laughs> yeah. Also, oh, don't order a black and tan. That's pretty rude in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and offensive. So yeah. just don't do it. I ordered one yesterday, and I felt immediately horrible. About <laughs> yeah, I go, but I don't know. It's it might be it's tough. It's tough. It's Chicago, the, Chicago Irish aren't actual Irish. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, the black and tan. It's it's a drink because um, or it's offensive because the black and tans were the English or no, they were an Irish loyal Irish police force operating in Dublin and across Ireland that was meant to suppress any um, freedom fighters, quote-unquote. Exactly. Um, so just kind of really quick as we wrap this up, um, we're talking about football charge and the psalm and looking back on it 100 years ago today and yesterday. And it's, it's so difficult to talk about how do you remember these things uh, but do it in a way that's both respectful to those who died, but aware, uh, with an awareness of, you know, the uselessness and pointlessness of World War One, and a lot of the wars Horrors, in general. Exactly. General, yeah, because um, obviously we weren't there. We can't. Yeah. Re- we can never empathize with with them what they've gone through um, while they were dying. Um, you were watching Supernatural. Exactly. And I was uh, probably playing Overwatch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, so how do, how do you do that respectfully, but, you know, not, not be a, a complete American flag-wielding... Yeah. Uh, Jingoist. Yeah, who's all naturalistic. Na- naturalistic. Uh, na- <laughs> nationalistic and... I want my country to oh, be God. <laughs> yeah. preservative free. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, um, I was reading about yesterday, I think what's, what happened, what actually happened in, in the UK was a very good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just telling Dylan about this before the show started. Um, there was a, a thing called the, the We Are Here um, kind of little movement show. Um, but basically, I'm still not sure if it, no one's really sure yet at this point whether it was like a private company who did it, uh, but it wasn't, you know, no one's really taking credit for it, at least at this point. Um, these, Which gives it more power. Yeah. These kind of performers or actors dressed up in World War One soldier uniforms and went to just about every single train station um, across the United Kingdom, whether you're in Edinburgh uh, or, you know, London, Victoria, Piccadilly, anything like that. And they just kind of stood around in silence all day. And if if you went up and asked them, you know, what are you doing? Why are you dressed up this way? They didn't respond. They handed you a, a card. And on the card it said it had the name of a soldier, uh, where he was born, when he was born, and then the day of his death and where he was killed. So it would be like July 1st, 1916 at the Somme. And that was their response. Um and every now and then they would speak, but it was only to sing a, a song called We Are Here. Um, and we just kind of go like, we are here because we're here, we're here because we're here, uh, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. And apparently that was a song that uh, soldiers in the trenches would sing. Um, and it just, it's, we're here because we're here. It's exactly. just a testament to even the soldiers at the time were like, we're here for no good reason. Exactly. It's the futility. We're here because we're here. Yeah. Uh, we're here in the trenches, uh, getting shot at, getting pounded by artillery, uh, getting you know blinded by gas. 
like literally getting their brains like knocked around by like the booms of the artillery, like the sonic yeah. movements. Yeah. For no apparent reason, like no good reason for them. Yeah. Like, there's no yeah. So what they and I, I like that a lot because there was no you know there it wasn't they weren't necessarily making an argument about anything um, and they they kept the attention on these soldiers themselves. Yeah. They brought these these men who were just privates or just riflemen. Um, they brought their names back into circulation, um, and just for even if it's just for a second, just to kind of remember them um, as humans, exactly. as, as as men, yeah, um, as people, not just numbers, not just lists of casualties, yeah. but people who actually existed and had families. Yeah, and obviously you're not going to be able to remember every single soldier. Or remember everything like it's just it's kind of pointless because human empathy is limited. We're getting very philosophical here. Yeah, there are attempts to do that though. There's a city in Britain. I'm forgetting exactly where, but they have there's a law and they have all the soldiers who died that they are aware of in World War One. British soldiers and like every year they read what out like an, a name an hour and this is expected to go on for the next like thousand years because so many people died and it's just an attempt to remember everybody and commemorate wow. and like show how the lasting effects of this war on the country. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, so just, yeah, just interesting. How do you remember these things? And, uh, I mean, the exactly. photographs, I've, like, you, you can look at Twitter, uh, hashtag we are here. Um, oh, is that a thing? Is that going on? Yeah, right that's, now? I, it's, it was really yesterday. Um, okay. I don't think it's not going on now anymore, yeah. but you can still, you can still find tons of stuff mm-hmm. about it. Um, and looking at the photographs of people just like taking up soldiers, just sitting there um, with kind of blank stares. They look like ghosts, to be honest. They're either you can either see them as like ghosts of the fallen, or see them as like as they look like real soldiers about to go hop on a train mm-hmm. and head off to war. And it's it's really interesting because it takes you back um, as if like if you go to visit a battlefield, you feel like you're back there for for a second. Um, but also, it's it's very solemn and respectful, and I like that. Yeah, so. I mean, and historians have always struggled too. Without a like writing about uh, war itself is always a big point. You'll get a lot of people who are like, especially ugh, yeah, like especially World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War. Like, there are some awful, awful like historical writings out there about these wars that are just like glorify it and like it's just like this was the best thing ever. Like these like. It wasn't pointless, and then you'll get the opposite end of the spectrum, which is like everything is bad. Like all these, like everyone was idiot, and then I and don't get. I'm not arguing at the points in the middle for who's right, um, but like um, just the spectrum and continued like continuity of how many people like write about history. Like just be aware, like for all my history students out there, be aware of like what you're reading and what your author is like trying to argue for when they're writing history because that certainly affects what and who they write about and how they write about war. Um, Because, I mean, in modern history, like, you find less and less, like, military history classes. And in popular history, like, military history is still huge. But in academic circles, it doesn't exist anymore. Well, not it still exists, but it's going quickly out of style. Mm -hmm. Um, But military history does still have things to tell us, but it just to be written in, like, the right way. And by the right people. So listing, like, the size of the fucking, like, artillery cannons, like, is pointless. Yeah. But then telling individual stories 
is very helpful. Yeah. I am listing the size of the artillery cannons is really bad if you're writing it down on a paper and you leave it in your trash can and then a man exactly. in the embassy <laughs> finds it and then accuses an innocent uh, soldier in the French uh, military. Callback! Jewish. Um, yeah. Name Dreyfus. That was last week's episode. <laughs> a quick little recap from Mitch. Yeah. Uh, click on the click on the box, the annotation here, if you want to uh, exactly. go on over to that podcast. <laughs> There's not going to be a box <laughs> or anything for you to click. No, uh, there isn't. Um, but yeah, just so just to recap, uh, we talked a little bit about the Battle of Somme, um, how it was one of the bloodiest battles in Human all history. time. Um, there and, might have been some badass yeah. dinosaur battles that we don't know about, um, but... Yeah, in human history at least. Um, then we talked a bit about the football charges, both by the Surrey Regiment under Billy Neville, and then the Irish Rifles, uh, London Irish Rifles. We also talked about Supernatural and how it's a great CW show, and everyone should watch it. Exactly. <laughs> so that's, uh, my name is Mitch. I'm Dylan, and this is the greatest podcast, podcast in, in history. history. Hit him with the outro. Oh, yeah.